Today, we bring you audio from the Embracing Autism IRL video podcast series. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. In this video series, we interview guests from a variety of backgrounds who are all linked together through autism. From advocates to therapists to parents and autistic adults, this series will take a well-rounded approach to sharing diverse perspectives on autism spectrum disorder. Our guests are encouraged to speak freely and be their authentic selves when discussing controversial yet critical topics in the autism community. If you'd like to watch the full unedited video of our interview-style podcast spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL, please subscribe to our YouTube channel of the same name and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Wish. Welcome to Embracing Autism IRL. Today, I bring to you a fellow autism advocate and CEO of autism consulting business, SJ Childs LLC, Sarah Bradford. Sarah is an autistic adult with a goal to support autism-impacted families. She is also a member of the Autism Council of Utah and the owner of the Autism Advocate Support Group on Facebook. Sarah is the mother of two with both her husband and kids on the autism spectrum. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I feel like it's been a while since we chatted and uh, time to bring you back. <laughs> catch up. Time to catch up. <laughs> so let's just go ahead and just dive into a little bit about you and your background, what you do. If you could just give me a, a bit of like what you do in terms of your work in the autism community and why you decided to become an autism advocate. Well, I mean, it all began decades ago when you know, my son was diagnosed, decade ago rather, throughout this journey of finding out that myself, my husband, and our kids are all on the spectrum. It's really led me to some amazing and fulfilling um, adventures and things in advocacy. I've written children's books. I have a podcast myself. But being able to work in the community and really help to understand what people need as far as professionals, families, services, uh, I really wanted to kind of, how can you bring that all together? The Facebook group is, is a wonderful community that has brought me so many amazing opportunities to serve families that are impacted by autism in so many ways. And not only that, but being able to then kind of transfer things and do these amazing events where I've been able to showcase autistics around the nation and this upcoming April, also an international summit to showcase advocates in their own countries and find out what it's like for others around the world. So I can't believe where it's brought me today. And <laughs> here I am embracing autism. <laughs> <laughs> I think the cool part about your events is that at least from what I've noticed, most of them, if not all of them are virtual, right? So you can pretty much attend yeah. them from like anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. It does make it really easy for families, you know, for service providers and internationally, that's going to be hard to get people together. But it's so nice to have this medium where we can all meet like this and we can get together and we can share our stories across the globe. And it's insane how many advocates have come forward and said, oh, I can't wait to share my story. We have a keynote speaker that is non-speaking that will be there with his speaking device and his and his translator because he's German. It's just like going to be so incredible to show the world that we need to start making space for the upcoming employees rather than going to be coming into the workforce for schools that need so much more help 
in helping to navigate behavior versus child support, (laughs) if you will. And I think that there's just so many avenues and it's not new, but we're just newly addressing things and getting it all sorted. Yeah, I think like one of the aspects that you kind of mentioned that is kind of newer to society is that we are now discovering more ways through technology to be able to involve and accommodate people who might be considered more, quote unquote, severe. So like, for example, your non-speaking speaker before that probably would have been pretty difficult, if not impossible. But now with the technology that we have, there's no reason why we can't have a non-speaking, well, speaker. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. So what is it like? I know that you have gone through your own journey of self-discovery and your own journey of basically figuring out that you yourself are autistic. You have now like autistic children and spouse. Your whole family is just like this little autistic family. So what has it been like being a autistic parent to an autistic child? Do you feel like that presents specific challenges that maybe neurotypical parenting wouldn't have? Or are there particular benefits that you think happen as well? I think for me personally, I find it so fulfilling and a a huge benefit to not only be able to look back at my childhood to see maybe where my needs weren't quite met, where I didn't feel heard or seen or valued possibly, and introduce a new way for my children to live in a world and in a parenting child parenting situation where they are valued and they are heard and seen. And I am able to kind of accommodate them because of the understanding I have for their specific neurological and biological needs. I think that it really opened up huge avenues of communication and love languages. It's simple as that to say, to be able to just know how this child shows up in the world and support them where they're at, who they are, rather than try to get them to change or have them to change to be a part of society. I want them to be who they are and go into society having that strong foundation, whether they do or not. I suspect my daughter will, you know, do that. And my son, possibly not. He may be at home with us, you know, for the end (laughs) till the end. I don't know what, how to say that, but um, ultimately what's really important is that we as parents, and especially let me tell you what it did for me as a spouse I had suspected quite later after our son had been diagnosed that my husband was also on the spectrum and it gave us so many answers for his own quirks, if you will, um, or accommodations that I gave him freely because I loved him and wanted to be considerate of his needs and his to me, strange sleeping habits or eating habits and things that I had never even known could have been autistic traits. And to then be able to kind of really look at that and say, wow, I can give all of these same accommodations to my kids because it's so much easier to show support and show up with an open mind and and almost saying like, show me the way you show me what you need. Like I, I'm going to just kind of step back and and listen and learn and watch. 
it brought my husband and I so close together. And this year will be 20 years that we've been together. How can he even get closer after that much time? But I'll tell you, it was just so much love and like appreciation for one another and consideration for one another. It really even deepened our relationship. But like I said, didn't even know that was possible. So I think that the benefits have greatly outweighed any challenges that other people might shine more light on. That's actually really interesting because like Matt is not autistic, but he is neurodivergent. So he has ADHD and other things. And we kind of had that self-discovery moment going on too. And part of what we've noticed is like once you do get a diagnosis and a label, it helps you kind of better communicate with your spouse as well because now you can kind of better interpret what the behavior is and like what it means. And so it helps you kind of adjust better with like your communication style and like how you react and stuff like that. At least that's what I've noticed in my relationship. (laughs) Absolutely. No, it made a huge difference. And there's probably not too many kids listening on the side of adultism, PG style. But, you know, as far as like intimacy goes, there are some, you know, monthly time period (laughs) that I'm just like, I've never understood. We have never been able to communicate correctly or like I don't like touch and things like that. And I never understood why, you know, it was always like, oh, you just cringed out by me or whatever. These things that were never, ever true in my heart. And it was so hard to like communicate how I was feeling. So to be able to say, oh my gosh, I'm sensory overloaded right now. I cannot stand touch. Like, do not, like, I don't put pants close to me. Don't put, you know, like, nothing like that. Or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. And, and so it, it, now I'm like, thank you. It made so much sense. And it really made it easier, like you just said, for the communication to happen, for me to be able to say, it's not you, it's me for real, right? Like I have proof. It just made it so much easier also for him to not take it personally. Yeah, I think that's absolutely like an important part of the relationship. (laughs) So you were talking a little bit before about your technique with your autistic child and how you kind of approach that relationship. What is it exactly that you mean when you say meeting a child where they at? And why do you feel like that's really important? Maybe it comes with I have an older stepdaughter that I raised prior to raising my own two biological children. So let's call it parenting practice. And there was a lot of, you know, learning in that phase. But also when, you know, we realized our son was nonverbal and communication with him couldn't be the same as it ever had been. We had to start from scratch and learn this whole new way of solving puzzles with his riddles through his language and all of the ways, you know, that he communicated with us. And it was so apparent that nothing we knew how to do was going to work. Like we had to reinvent the wheel a hundred percent. And with that comes trial and error, um, a little bit of failure, but also success. It also comes with finding success. And in that, really understanding like what my level of patience had to be with this child who, you know, was in pull-ups until he was seven, that takes a lot of patience because I'll tell you what, 
you know probably as well as I do that every extended family member, every preschool teacher, every school psychologist, every neighbor, you know, had their opinion as to when he should sit on the toilet. And for me, you know, that was great that they had them, but it wasn't helpful for me. It didn't make me feel supported. Didn't help me help him. It didn't help him get to the toilet any faster because, you know, Mary down the street says that he has to be on the potty by three. No, it didn't help at all. And so I I kind of started after realizing for so long that I need to be what he needs me to be. This child can barely communicate in words what he needs as a human being. Like he doesn't need the extended pressures of society's idea of when everything should happen. He has his whole life to sit on the toilet to go to the bathroom. That's what I say to people now. You have your child has their whole life to sit on a toilet. And maybe not. Maybe some children who who can't even do that, they won't ever do that. That's okay. It, it's not like a, a measure that's that's really out there in the world. When you come to terms with trying to control every situation with a child that is completely out of your control, you learn to kind of like hold the reins, if you will, instead. And you just follow and you just kind of let them lead you and provide them with boundaries that are safe and as much as you can. (laughs) So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of like a metaphor of like not fighting the current, but just like going with the current. Because like if you fight the current, you're just going to get exhausted and the current's always going to win. So it's better to learn to kind of like flow with the current, save your energy and then learn how to navigate that. So I I totally get what you're saying and where you're coming from there. (laughs) One of the things that came to mind as well is this whole process where you are raising your child you're having your own self-discovery. You're going through these struggles as you're raising your child. And you mentioned what a few of those were. So if you had somebody give advice to you, or like if you could offer advice to parents who are now struggling to connect with their child, what advice would you give? I think it's really important to, and I am practicing this, so don't think I'm an expert at any any case by by all means but being just a better listener like really connecting with your child children in general all across the board are looking for connections when people oftentimes think they're looking for attention they're seeking attention they're trying to get attention attention but what they're really really seeking is a genuine and a heartfelt and a meaningful connection with a parent, with a guardian, with a sibling, with a friend. That's what we all want as human beings. When we step into the role as a parent, for some of us, and maybe because I had already practiced parenting, right? I'd already been parenting um, for so long, but also because it was meaningful for me. I wanted to be a parent. I wanted to put my all into these little humans that I was going to be raising. And I went into it intentionally. Some people don't have that option. They go into it 
when they're young and their brain isn't even fully developed all the way. And for those people, like they have to learn if they have the want and desire to do so to parent intentionally as well. And that means that you have to let go maybe of the parenting style that you were given. If it wasn't healthy, that's not for all of us. You know, it's so individual to each and every family. So it's so hard to say how, you know, any family is impacted, but definitely it's even harder to try to make these types of meaningful connections with a child who seems to be in their own world, seems to not be capable of making these types of connections with you. That's where you have to be a really strong learner, listener, listening, not only with like your ears, but watching and trying to kind of uncover that one little way to get into that child's world with them. And it was really early on that we had seen maybe like a short film or documentary about a boy who the dad had recreated the voice of Iago in Aladdin. And I remember watching that and thinking, oh my gosh, if this dad can kind of enter his child's world through these Disney characters, what would that look like for us? What is our son, his interests currently? And when you really want to learn about your own child, the best way sometimes is to have them teach you. We would of course, want to know what he was doing. But then we realized like we could start engaging with him through his interests, which makes it so much more meaningful for everyone. And then you're able to take what you're learning and do it with the next child, right? (laughs) And they're all different. They're all so very different, but you can still take those same like main steps and watching them grow through that empowerment in their own strengths of teaching you something is the greatest gift. It's really interesting because I don't know if you realized it, but like as you're explaining your example, it's very similar to what floor time therapy is. Have you heard of floor time therapy? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it's child led through play going through the world. So it seems like you were almost doing that without knowing you were doing that. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's so, and I think that, you know, we'll give that the autism brain. Um, <laughs> Superpower award because I really think that sometimes, like, I've invented these ways through our lives and through our systems that we've, you know, created for our family. And it's not understood by many. And it's usually not even understood until like 10 or 20 years later. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I've been yeah, doing- yeah. But we we found a similar thing with our child because when she was young, she was also nonverbal completely in her own world. She wouldn't even acknowledge other people in the room. And we started kind of engaging in her activities. So like she used to play with water bottles. So we would just play with the water bottles with them. We would add food coloring to them. We would make them jump and do silly things. Instead of pushing regular toys, quote unquote, we just took whatever she was interested in and tried to make it more fun and add steps to it so that she was also stretching her goals and imagination, things like that. 
So that was part of our process, too. So I do think that it works. It seems to do wonders for our kid, at least. So I wanted to also follow up because part of this process of the parenting journey is when you first get that diagnosis for your child. And a lot of parents have a hard time processing that. They have a hard time understanding, like, what does this mean? What do I do? Where do I go from here? In your experience, what would have been helpful for you to have known when you got that diagnosis? Or what do you wish somebody had told you at like that doctor's office? At the very beginning, I often played that doctor's visit back and back and back and back and back. And I was actually so angry at the pediatrician for telling me because I just didn't have any experience. And I and I ended up going back to him maybe five years later and, and expressing that to him and telling him, look, I was so mad at you for telling me this. And like, I, I even stopped coming to see you for a little while. But now I realized that like you gave me the keys to the kingdom. Like I couldn't have access. I, we, we could, he couldn't be where he's at now had we have not had this, you know, this information. And ultimately it is the reason I created one of the quotes that I have, and that is a little bit of knowledge turns fear into understanding. And it's so hard when you first get that and you don't have any information behind it. They should maybe better information. You know, this was 13 years ago. So they just didn't have a lot of, you know, a pamphlet they could have sent or access to a website they knew about or anything. And, you know, I've even gone back and given them like my children's books and my cards and said, tell people to reach out to me if this happens. But I did learn some really valuable lessons along the way and about the diagnosis process and kind of that information for parents. And I think it's so, so crucial and important. And that was at the very beginning kind of of my podcasting and even in my early advocating, you know, in, in the schools and things, I had said to parents and had conversations with my own spouse about how it felt like grieving sometimes that we had like grieved this life we had expected. But it wasn't until I had interviewed an advocate, a self-advocate who expressed to me how devastated he was to hear his parents say that they grieved him and how it dampened his self. And I never, I swore that moment that I would never say that again. And that, you know, you don't know until you do and you learn and you be better. And I just really understood at that moment that even though I thought I was so far along in the process, I was still this little tiny baby, <laughs> little, you know, in, in this ex big experiment that was happening. But um, even that moment, it was okay that I was making a mistake and it was okay that I, you know, hadn't understood what somebody else had gone through. But what was good is that from then on, I could say, hey, it's okay to feel overwhelmed and be discouraged in the hopes that you had, but also I don't ever use the word grieving anymore. <laughs> like I don't, I swear that off forever because I really want to now make sure that everybody is being cognizant of the ears that are listening and 
the kids that are hearing that this life is different or challenging or or anything other than the life they're just living. It's really tricky. So tricky. Words are so tricky. <laughs> I think life is so tricky in general. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I get that. I know that every parent has like a different journey. Every child has a different journey. Some people are really impacted by language. Some people kind of brush off language and it doesn't bother them. It's really individualized. And I think that's why, like for me, the most important part is that we have a close connection with our child. Try to find a way to reach out and connect with them because we won't know what type of kid they are unless we do that. Like we have to know like what they're okay with. And I know that's a lot harder with like our nonverbal kiddos. And there's a lot of challenges with communication there. But I'm like an advocate for like, just keep trying whatever you can, however you can and never really give up. So I think you you bring a good point there. This kind of just reminds me overall of just like the tough journey that a lot of parents go through. And, you know, it's tough for kids, too. Like you said, like the autistic individuals going through the journey as well. Part of that process, unfortunately, tends to lead to burnout, both the autistic burnout that the child suffers through. And for the parent, there's like parental burnout. So you're an autistic parent. So I guess you could speak on both of those parts or one or neither, whichever you'd like. But what has been your experience with burnout, either parental burnout or autistic burnout? And how do you think that parents can address those? I am definitely in the throes of those moments um, right now. And kind of like you, we both have been a little off of this, off the scene for a little bit now. And for you, it was definitely a different situation than mine. I think that I was definitely have been going through some burnout. And after the last event that I did, it just was very overwhelming. And it's almost like it was so amazing and so magical that afterwards it's like there's nothing there's it's completely unfulfilling and <laughs> it's the strangest I, I just have verbalized that right now in this moment and literally haven't said anything about it for like three months so it's probably good that I'm therapying in this set <laughs> breaking news <laughs> <laughs> right But for my kiddos, it definitely, you know, for our son, it comes out in the overreactive behaviors and he has a very predictive schedule. When he's kind of going through burnout, it's very apparent in his gruffness, I guess you can say, or he kind of has a crazy sleep schedule. We call the moon schedule. You know, if he doesn't get the good amounts of sleep, then it really, um, like every human, can really affect him. Um, And with my daughter, I would say it's really in unmasking. And when she goes to school, and I know that you know, she's been masking all day and then she gets home and she just wants to be left alone. And in my upbringing, I would have been like, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you, why, what, you know, constantly berated over that. She cannot handle that. That would completely put her into meltdown stage. So we understand that. And my, she's a lot like my husband. And so I, look at what have I done to accommodate him in his times of of need in those moments? And how do I replicate that for this little person, you know, in the home? One of the things that I talk about, too, is kind of addressing society's perception on autism. And there seems to be still to this day, a lot of misconception on what autism is. 
either one extreme or the other. So there's people who just think that autism is not debilitating in any way. You can function fully without any accommodations. You don't need anything. You're good to go. And then there's people on the complete opposite end where they think that if you're autistic, it's basically a doomsday label and there's absolutely no hope for you whatsoever. So what is it that you feel personally society understood better about autism? It's going to be have to be known that brains that are wired differently and like are completely different than typical brains cannot be accessed or supported in the same fashion. It's just like a computer. It's like Apple and Android. <laughs> you, know, you can't you can't use the other pieces for each other. Uh, it gets impossible. They're just so completely different. You can't even send messages to each other that are normal. We really need to be understanding of the fact that you are only disabled by autism to the effect that it disables you. How does it disable me? Maybe in anxiety, uh, social anxiety sometimes, which seems really strange because I'm extremely outgoing, but sometimes I have a hard time leaving the house. And not many people know that. Not many people know that like I get so worked up sometimes and I, I like can't breathe and like I have a hard time just leaving. What does it look like for the other individuals that are in the home? Completely different. You know, for my son, it is lack of safety. It's lack of cognizant understanding of things. There's severe challenges with that. When my 14-year-old is in his shoes and t-shirt and shorts with his ready-to-go bag, leaving the house in a snowstorm, and we're not going anywhere, like that's a serious safety issue. And like we have to constantly address those types of things. And that doesn't look normal for the kids up the street whose mom just says, shopping, you know, and <laughs> the door shuts. Like for him, it's like, we have to take steps. We have to remind him. We might have to get a different locking mechanism because he is older now and is being able to access things that he wasn't before. So really, we can't expect that a, there's going to be a one-size-fits-all understanding for everyone because it's it's never been that way. It never will be. Yeah, I think basically it's kind of like that saying where if you've met somebody with autism, you've met one person with autism. So it's kind of like yeah. you can't really put a blanket statement on all autistic people because everybody experiences autism to different degrees and it's very different for everyone. Like you were saying about the door locks, I have kids who are eloping and I had to put like door locks and all this stuff. But there are some kids that are kind of like the opposite and they tend to cling to the parent and they never want to leave the parent. So it just it depends on the kid and what accommodations that kid needs or the adult who may need completely different accommodations. I know some autistic adults that are like me that are very sound sensitive and we need the earplugs. We need to get away. But then there's others like my daughter who are just all about the chaos. They just love the chaos. They love the books with all the sounds on them, you know. So it really just depends. <laughs> and I think that's why accommodations are tricky because you don't want to give the opposite accommodation to the wrong kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Isn't that the truth? So as you know, this podcast is called Embracing Autism. 
we're all about the concept of embracing autism, but we like to ask each of our guests what that concept means to you. What would embracing autism look like to you? I think that you could literally see me and everything about me and <laughs> know that it is embracing autism from our children's books to the podcast to the events that we've been holding, groups, the community in every way. Even when I'm just at the grocery store and there's a level of understanding that people are starting to have and it kind of interesting. You, you had, I'll kind of bring this little thing about accommodations into this because really it's always been really hard to go to the grocery store with our son and he gets so overwhelmed. He has a photographic memory. And so all of the ticket prices and the colors and the signs and everything, I, I couldn't, I can't even imagine how hard that might, must be for him to have to try to sort that all out while he's taking it all in at once. For years, it's just look, we have been living in the same place for about 13 years now. And so we've been to the same grocery store every time, um, which is nice, but he really has a hard time. But it wasn't until maybe the last two years that we got some noise canceling headphones for him to wear. And it was almost like a signal for society. Like they had seen atypical or something on TV where some autistic kid had headphones on. And so they were nicer and more patient and understanding. And it was like this ticket or something in, out in, in public that if he had his headphones on, people around us were better. And, you know, his behavior was better sometimes, didn't really matter. But other people's was, was better and they were more understanding. So I just find that very interesting how that can be the case. So I think that as a society, things are coming around. There's so much more to be understood and learn, um, especially for females on the autism spectrum and what that looks like and how we can better support females and, and the diagnosis process and all along the whole way. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. It's interesting that you bring up that example of the headphones because we experienced something similar with the wagon that we had, the prescription wagon. And so we have both of our kids in there because they both elope. And prior to getting the handicap placard stuff, we just had the wagon going around and we got like the most judgmental looks because People think like, you know, it's big, it's bulky, you're getting in our way. Like they just find it annoying. And also like my kids would be kind of rambunctious and you'd get like those kind of judgmental looks. And as soon as we put like the handicap placard sign on it saying like this is a like prescribed pediatric ambulatory device, it's not just like for fun. All of a sudden people were more empathetic. They weren't giving us as many stares. They were more willing to just kind of be nice to us. And I found that honestly a little bit disturbing in a sense because it's kind of like people in society jump to negative first rather than jumping towards giving people the benefit of the doubt. H have you experienced that too? Totally. In fact, one of my children's books is based on this exact thing. And that is that we used, when we used to go trick or treating, it was always sorry, sorry, he's autistic. Sorry, 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 he's trying to come in the house. Sorry, he asked you what your dog's name was. I felt like I was giving excuses all the time why my kid was at their trick-or-treating door. And it was crazy. And it wasn't until one Halloween where we put a sticker on him that said, 
I'm autistic. Please be patient. And people were so nice and so patient and got down to his level and let him ask these questions he had to ask them. He is verbal now. It is unfortunate that society is like that. At the same time, it goes back to that just a little bit of knowledge can turn fear into understanding and they can be a little bit more compassionate with these families and with us who deserve it. (laughs) And on that note, I would love for you to share some of those resources that you talked about previously so parents can get a little more help on this. So I know that you said you had a website. If you could just share the website with us again and where my listeners can find you on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, SJChilds.org. You can find the podcast, the books, the upcoming events, the partners page with dozens and dozens of partners and resources that you can check out that you might find can be lifesavers for you in in many ways. So yeah, please do go check that out. I'm on all social medias. You could find me at either SJ Childs or Sarah Bradford on Facebook. Yeah, so definitely give her a follow. She's got a bunch of really helpful events with a lot of autistic adults that actually present in these events with really good experience insight. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to the Embracing Autism podcast. It was a pleasure having you, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It's so nice to be here, and thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one, and I hope to have you on the show again in the future. Bye. Bye. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Autism Wish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.